Hello, and welcome to the History of the Church of Jesus Christ. Episode 19, Driving Forces for Change. For centuries, a rift was forming between the Eastern and Western Christian churches, the lines dividing between the Greek and the Latin churches. Things came to a head in 1053. Michael Cerularius, Patriarch of Constantinople, wrote an open letter to the Western Latin churches, including the papacy, that condemned Western, pra condemned Western practices such as using unleavened bread for the Eucharist and fasting rules that differed from those in Constantinople. Then, Cerularius closed all Latin churches in Constantinople. Pope Leo IX wrote a letter in response on September 2nd, 1053. In this letter, he wrote of the primacy of the Bishop of Rome due to the authority of St. Peter. He also references the privileges gained by, granted by the emperors, quoting from the donation of Constantine. Leo IX was the first to directly invoke from the donation of Constantine, which supposedly gave the papacy, quote, power and dignity of glory and vigor and honor imperial, end quote as well as supremacy as well over the four principal seas, Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Constantinople, as also over all the churches of God on, in the whole earth. What Leo IX didn't know is that the donation of Constantine was a forgery. He believed that it was genuine. Some scholars believe that this letter from Leo IX was never sent, but the letter that he did send was still fairly harsh. Meanwhile, the Normans, descendants of Vikings, were invading southern Italy, threatening the possessions of both the Byzantines and the papacy. When Cerularius didn't help fight the Normans, Leo IX sent another scathing letter, condemning him for trying to amass more power than the Patriarchate of Constantinople affords him. Leo reasserted the primacy of the See of Rome, and, Pope, and he later died soon after. His papal legates, who carried the letters to the Patriarch of Constantinople, excommunicated the Patriarch on July 16, 1054. Four days later, Sir Larius excommunicated the Legates. At the time, the spat didn't, didn't seem too significant, but what it meant was that there was a great schism between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't immediate, and over time, the divide grew wider and wider. To further solidify the divide, the Latin Crusaders sacked Constantinople in the Fourth Crusade. In 1272, there was a council at Lyon, convoked by the British, the Byzantine Emperor Michael VIII to reunite the Eastern Church with the West. Pope Gregory X also sought to reunite the two factions. He held a combined mass for Catholics and Orthodox alike. A later pope, Martin IV, saw the union of the two churches was a sham, orchestrated by the Emperor for political reasons. He excommunicated Emperor Michael in 1281. Efforts to reunite the two churches continued in 1439, when Emperor John VIII Palaiologos called for a meeting with Pope Eugene IV at the Council of Ferreira, Florence. He wanted to ally himself with the West to defend himself from the encroaching Ottoman Turks. The effort ultimately failed, and two decades later, in 1453, Constantinople fell to the Ottomans. The Church in Rome was undergoing many changes during this time. From the time of the Great Schism to 1257, there were many conflicts between the papacy and the Holy Roman and Byzantine emperors. 
1257 to 1377, the Pope lived outside of Rome, in Viterbo, or Orvieto, Perugia, and Avignon. This period is known as the Avignon Papacy. Following the Avignon Papacy, there occurred another schism, this time the Western Schism, in which there were two, even three, popular competing papal claimants. I will get into both the Avignon Papacy and the Western Schism later in this episode. In 1143, the people of Rome revolted against the church rule and established the Commune of Rome, ruled by the Senate. It was meant to be a revived Roman Republic. Though it was put down only 12 years later, the Commune of Rome left its mark in the civil government of the city for for centuries. In 1188, the Commune was recognized by Pope Clement III. Later, in 1204, there was chaos in Rome as as there was a struggle between Pope Innocent III's family and the rivals, the Orsini family. Many ancient buildings were destroyed. Conflicts between noble families within the city of Rome prevented it from becoming an autonomous and stable, becoming autonomous and stable like Florence, Siena, and Milan. Another reason that the Romans were too focused on, another reason was that the Romans were too focused on immediate advantage. Ironically, because they dreamed of restoring Roman supremacy. In 1277, Pope Nicholas III of the Orsini family moved the papal seat from the Lateran to the Vatican which was more defensible. In 1300, the first Jubilee, or Holy Year, was held and the first University of Rome was founded, three years into the 14th century. The Pope at the time, Boniface VIII, tried to assert papal power over Philip the Fair, the King of France, when Philip decided to tax the French clergy. When Boniface sent a papal bull declaring the absolute power of the Pope over earthly things, Philip organized an expedition to arrest and remove the Pope from office. 2,000 mercenaries were sent to the Pope's palace at Anagni. The Pope's attendants all fled, and Boniface was nearly killed when the palace was plundered. For three days, Boniface was the prisoner of Philip. This incident is called the Outrage of Anagni. The people of Anagni rose up and saved Boniface, and he pardoned his captors, returning to Rome in 1303. He died less than a month later. According to legend, he died of shame. Before I move on to the Avignon Papacy, I wish to discuss further the investiture controversy. Investiture refers to the formal installation of an official. In this case, it refers to the installation of church leaders like abbots or bishops. The local rulers and kings tried to control the local churches by placing their own people in positions of power, rather than let the offices be filled by the clergy. One practice employed by the rulers was simony, in which church offices were sold to the highest bidder. A crisis began when supporters of the Gregorian reforms, which reinforced reinforced rules of conduct for clergy, decided to abandon simony and forcefully take the power of investiture from the Holy Roman Emperor. When Emperor Henry IV was king at six years old in 1056, the reformers seized the papacy. The College of Cardinals was created to elect popes, replacing the old way of secular kings appointing popes. A Lateran council decided that the only that only the Pope could appoint or depose churchmen or move them from sea to sea. Henry IV, no longer a child, continued to appoint his own bishops. In response to Gregory VII's Lateran council, Henry IV sent a letter to, that withdrew any and all support from the Pope. He also called for a new Pope. Then Henry reinstalled re- his chaplain as Bishop of Milan, just as the Pope had chosen a candidate for the position. In 1076, Gregory excommunicated and deposed Henry, though it was difficult to enforce. 
Henry's nobles were happy to be released from their oaths of allegiance to Henry. Nor the nobles revolted against him. Forced to back down, Henry traveled to Canossa in northern Italy to apologize to the Pope in person. He wore a hair shirt and stood barefoot in the snow in what became known as the Walk to Canossa. Gregory lifted the excommunication, but the damage was already done. The arist aristocratic rebellion became known as the Great Saxon Revolt. Gregory later excommunicated Henry again, who then proclaimed anti-pope Clement III as pope. In 1080, the Great Saxon Revolt ended. The next year, Henry invaded Italy to depose Gregory and install a new, friendlier pope. The Normans of southern Italy rescued the pope in 1085, but also sacked Rome. Henry's son, Henry V, rebelled in favor of the papacy. After the conquered of Worms, Henry V was re received back into communion and re recognized as legitimate emperor. A similar investiture controversy happened at the same time in England, between po the Pope and Henry I. In 1122, the Concordat of Worms provided a compromise that eliminated lay investiture. As a result, the monarchy lost power and the feudal lords gained power over the peasants. This led to an increased serfdom, and higher taxes, and the rise of local courts. Another episode in the saga of conflict between the church and state was of the murder of Thomas Becket. Thomas Becket, the Archdeacon of Canterbury, was appointed Lord Chancellor to Henry II of England in 1155. Becket and Henry became close friends, Becket becoming a father figure for Henry. In 1062, Becket was elected as Archbishop of Canterbury by a royal council of bishops and noblemen. Henry saw this as an opportunity to exercise control over the church in England. He expected Becket to be loyal to the king first and the church second. The constitutions of Clarendon were drawn up to lessen the independence of the clergy and weaken the ties with Rome. Henry oversaw the writing of these constitutions, but Becket refused to sign the proposals. By this time, two years after his election, Becket had become an ascetic and had a strong sense of loyalty to the church, which overruled his loyalty to the king. Henry put Becket on trial for contempt of royal authority. Becket was convicted, but fled from the trial to the continent. Henry pursued him, but Louis VII of France gave him protection. In 1170, Pope Alexander III intervened, and Henry offered a compromise that allowed Becket to return to England. Later, three English bishops crowned the heir apparent, Henry the Young King, at York, which violated Canterbury's privilege of coronation. In response, Becket excommunicated the three bishops. He would also excommunicate anyone who opposed him. Upon hearing this, Henry said something that was interpreted by his men as a command to kill Becket. We don't know what was actually said, however. Late in the year 1170, four of Henry's knights confronted Becket. Becket refused to go with them to answer for his actions, so they killed him in the cathedral while the monks were chanting vespers. Becket was soon venerated as a martyr, and he was canonized by the Pope in 1173. The early Crusades left the church in a position of great power and prestige in the 12th and 13th centuries. This power culminated in Boniface VIII's Unum Sanctum, papal bull, declared, which declared that, quote, it is necessary to salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff, end quote. Well, remember how this turned out. As we found out later, earlier in this episode, Philip IV of France did not agree. He said, quote, Your venerable conceitedness may know that we are nobody's vassal in temporal matters. End quote. The outrage of 
Anagni occurred and the Pope died of shame. Pope Benedict XI was elected in his place. He forgave Philip IV and his subjects, though excommunicating those who assaulted Boniface. Benedict died just eight months into his papacy. Eleven months later, in 1305, the French Pope Clement V was elected. Clement was a personal friend of the French king, and all the popes during the Avignon papacy were French. Avignon was the part of the Kingdom of Arles, which was independent of both France and the Holy Roman Empire. Arles was so independent that it developed its own variation of Christianity, called Catharism. Cathar beliefs varied. They call, them, they call themselves the good men, good women, or good Christians. They believed that there were two gods, the good God of the New Testament and the evil God of the Old Testament. Many Cathars, particularly their persecutors, identify the evil god with Satan, making the Cathars look like Satan worshippers. Innocent III, whom we have already discussed, sent missionaries to the Cathars, trying to end what he saw as a dangerous heresy. In 1208, his papal legate was murdered after excommunicating a Cathar-friendly count. In response, the Albigensian Crusade was launched. The Albigensian Crusade against the Cathars lasted for 20 years, ending in 1229. At least 200,000, or at most 1 million, Cathar Christians were killed during these 20 years. By the 14th century, the Holy See had become very rich. Tithes and special taxes poured money into the church. The Crusades were paid for and then, fi then failed to launch, leaving the funds in the hands of the Pope or the Cardinals. Popes like John XXII, Benedict Twelfth, and Clement VI spent fortunes on expensive wardrobes and silver and gold plates that were used at banquets. According to contemporaries, the popes began to live like princes, rather than members of clergy. Even the lower ranks of the church began to become wealthier. Some of the money coming in resulted in the, from the selling of absolutions of sins and indulgences for the dead. The rise of wealthy clergy was accompanied by an increase in resentment towards the said clergy. People recognized that they were no longer living up to their vows of chastity and poverty, but of course, not all clergy were disloyal to their vows. For all we know, there could have been only a, a, couple, a handful of naughty friars that ruined the image of the clergy for everyone. Nevertheless, movements were formed to return the church for, to absolute poverty, to relinquish all personal ecclesiastical belongings, and to preach as the Lord and his apostles did. Some popes treated the papacy as their own personal possession, and were unchristlike in their conduct. For example, Pope Clement V condemned the entire order of the Knights Templar for the sins of a few members, and he refused to hear their defense. He ordered that anyone who spoke up during their trial, who wasn't asked to speak by the Pope, would be excommunicated. The Avignon Papacy began when Clement V decided not to move to Rome upon his ascension to the Papacy. He established his court in Avignon, France. He launched the crusade against the Cathars and other heretical groups. He reorganized the internal administration of the Church, and he worked to further the view that the Catholic Church was the only instrument of God's will on the earth. A couple popes later, Pope Clement VI, who ruled from 1342 to 1352, had strong ties to the King of France. He helped pay for the French war effort in the Hundred Years' War. It was during his reign in Avignon that the extravagance of the papacy reached new heights. It was also during his, his papacy that a terrifying, devastating plague swept through Europe. I will discuss this in more, more in depth later in this episode. In 1348, the Pope bought the city of Avignon from the Angevins, or the Kingdom of Anjou, and Pope Innocent VI took over the, the papacy in 1352. 
and reigned for ten years. He was less partisan and more eager to establish peace between England and France. He was unsuccessful, however, and proved to be fairly weak and impressionable, despite commanding respect from nobles on both sides of the conflict. Pope Urban V, his successor, reigned until 1370, and during his austere reign, the papacy at Avignon was controlled by King Charles V of France. As the papacy blatantly favored France over England, respect for the church began to decline. Urban died and was replaced by Gregory XI, who decided to return to Rome. In 1377, he arrived in the Eternal City and set about re-establishing the city as the papal seat. But the papacy had made enemies of its Italian neighbors while in Avignon, so many city-states in the Italian peninsula did not welcome the return of the pope. A papal legate was sent to ruthlessly re-establish control over these cities. Mercenaries were hired, and massacres ensued. The city of Florence came into open rebellion against the pope in a conflict called the War of the Eight Saints named after the eight Florentine counselors who were in charge. The Pope excommunicated the entire city of Florence. Gregory XI's return to Rome temporarily stopped the conflict, but an even more perilous situation occurred. Gregory's successor, Urban VI, was an Italian, the first one since the Avignon Papacy. He alienated the French cardinals, who then appointed a second Pope, Clement VII, who was French. Clement and his successors are known as the anti-popes, or popes that were not legitimate. This was a Western schism, which lasted from 1378 to the Ecumenical Council of Constance in 1417, which declared the French conclave that appointed Clement VII to be invalid. Pope Martin V was elected during the council, but the Avignon popes would continue to claim to be the real popes until 1437. In the period of the schism, the power struggle in the papacy became a battlefield of the major powers, with France supporting the Pope in Avignon and England supporting the Pope in Rome. At the end of the century, still in the state of schism, the papacy had lost most of its direct political power, and the nation-states of France and England had established, had been, were established as the two of the main, main powers in Europe. The Avignon papacy has been called the Babylonian captivity of the popes. I wish to backtrack to cover some of the positive influences in the church, having discussed some of the negative aspects of the church in the 14th century. Francis of Assisi was born around 1182. He raised, was raised in a wealthy family, and he was fairly spoiled. He became a devotee of troubadours and was fascinated with all things French. He loved to wear fine clothing, and he spent money lavishly. According to legend, one day when he was selling cloth for his father, a beggar came up to him and asked for alms. Francis reportedly gave the beggar everything that he had in his pockets, which was a very generous act of charity, as he had a lot of money to give. Around 1202, he joined a military expedition against the city of Perugia. He was a prisoner of war for a year. During this time, he grew ill and began to rethink his life. Thus began his spiritual conversion. After his time as a prisoner of war, he returned to Assisi and tried to readjust to his carefree life. Two years later, he had a vision which caused him to disdain the worldly life. His friends noticed that he began to avoid the sports and feasts that he used to love. They jokingly asked him who he was getting ready to marry. He replied, quote, A fairer bride than any of you have ever seen, Lady Poverty. End quote. He took a pilgrimage to Rome and asked for spiritual enlightenment. Soon thereafter, near Assisi, he received a mystical vision of Christ telling him, Francis, Francis, Go and repair my house, which, as you can see, is falling into ruins. Francis interpreted this as a commandment to repair the decrepit chapel in which the vision occurred. 
He ran away from home after his father beat, bound, and locked him up. His mother was the one who freed him while his father was away. Francis sought shelter in the church that he was to repair. When his father took legal action against the priest that was housing Francis, Francis renounced his father and his father's property that he would have inherited. He wandered as a beggar for a couple months. Over time, he rebuilt the chapel in which he had seen the vision, called St. Damiano, and he took, he took to repairing other nearby chapels. He also built himself a small hut by the chapel of St. Mary of the Angels. Francis was inspired by Christ's commissioning of the Twelve, found in the book of Matthew, which stated that the apostles were to go and proclaim the kingdom of, that the kingdom of God is at hand, dressed in simple clothing, and little, little to no worldly possessions. He began to go across the countryside, preaching and gaining followers. These followers were called friars. In 1209, he composed rule for his followers, which he described as the primitive rule. It involved the following of following te the teaching of Jesus Christ and walking in his footsteps. Francis then took his 11 friars to Rome, where they got permission from Pope Innocent III to found a new religious order. The Franciscan order quickly grew as many people, upon hearing Francis' preaching, would seek to follow him. One of these, Clara of Assisi, had to sneak out of her family's palace to follow Francis. He received her and established the Order of the Poor Ladies. This order also grew as more women chose to become Franciscan nuns. This order became known as the Second Franciscan Order, or the Poor Clares. A third order of brothers and sisters of penance was composed of both laity and clergy, who never withdrew from the world nor took religious vows. It is known today as a secular Franciscan order. Francis traveled around, spreading his views and growing his following. He traveled to Spain and France. He met Dominique de Guzman, founder of the Friars Preachers, or Dominican Friars. He traveled to Egypt for during the Fifth Crusade to try to convert the Sultan of that country. Supposedly, he walked through, the through fire unharmed to prove the veracity of the Christian gospel to the Sultan. The Sultan gave permission for Francis to visit the holy sites of the Holy Land. We know that, that he left for Italy from Acre around 1220. Francis came up with two more rules that encouraged Franciscan friars to follow Christ, living in obedience with no possessions and in chastity. In 1224, Francis had a vision and reportedly received the stigmata, or manifestations of bodily wounds, scars, and pain in locations corresponding to the crucifixion wounds of Christ, namely the hands, wrists, and feet. Knowing that the end was coming, Francis spent his last days dictating his spiritual testament. He died in 1226, singing a psalm. Two years later, he was pronounced a saint. In 2013, the Argentine Jorge Mario Bergoglio was elected pope. Upon his election, the Brazilian Cardinal Claudio Humes embraced him and whispered, quote, Don't forget the poor. End quote. This made Bergoglio think of St. Francis of Assisi. Due to this, Bergoglio chose the name Francis to be his papal name. There were some other good influences in the church and in high medieval society. Petrarch lived from 1304 to 1374 in Italy. He was one of the earliest humanists, being a scholar and poet of the early Renaissance, which was beginning to dawn at the end of Petrarch's life. In fact, Petrarch is often considered the founder of humanism. He was the first to develop the concept of the Dark Ages, recognizing that changes were accelerating in Europe, and that the era that began with the fall of Rome was a time of less knowledge and quote-unquote light. Petrarch was, was born while Dante Alighieri
was active in Italy. Dante is known for his Divine Comedy, which is considered the most important poem of the Middle Ages and the greatest literary work in the Italian language. The Divine Comedy, written in 1320, was split up into three books, Paraiso, Purgatorio, and Inferno, which discuss a man's journey through heaven, purgatory, and hell, respectively. Dante was a defender of the vernacular, saying that poems and works should be available in common languages, not just in Latin. Dante's depictions of the afterlife inspired countless works of art made just before, during, and after the Renaissance. Dante set a precedent that Petrarch followed. Another Italian writer influenced by Dante was Giovanni Boccaccio. Boccaccio, like Petrarch, was a humanist writer and poet. He wrote The Decameron, containing 100 stories told by 10 people, quarantined in a manner during the Black Death. He also wrote biographies of famous historical and mythological women. Both Dante and Boccaccio influenced Geoffrey Chaucer, today known as the father of, the, of English literature and the greatest English poet of the Middle Ages. Besides writing his famous Canterbury Tales, which tells the stories told by pilgrims on the way to the shrine of St. Thomas Becket at Canterbury Cathedral, Chaucer also wrote a treatise on the astrolabe. He was a philosopher, astronomer, bureaucrat, and diplomat. Another English philosopher during the 13th and 14th centuries was Roger Bacon. He was a Franciscan friar who studied nature and is credited with being one of the earliest European advocates of the modern scientific method, inspired by Aristotle and Al-Hazen, an Arab scientist from the Islamic Golden Age, approximately the 8th century to the 14th. This is an excellent example of how Europeans were slowly but surely rediscovering ancient texts as well as Arabic texts that dealt with science, medicine, mathematics, philosophy, etc. As these texts became more available, ancient knowledge returned to the zeitgeist and fueled the Renaissance and scientific revolution. Roger Bacon was also the first in Europe to record the formula for gunpowder, which of course had been invented in China long before. St. Thomas Aquinas, born in 1225, was an Italian Dominican friar and Catholic priest. He would later be named a doctor of the church, as he was hugely influential as a philosopher, theologian, and jurist. He argued that reason is found in God, that reason does not contradict the existence of God, or the creation, or miracles. His ideas influenced Western thought and modern philosophy, particularly his ideas about ethics, natural law, metaphysics, and political theory. He looked back to Aristotle for inspiration. He managed to synthesize the Greek rationalism of Aristotle with the principles of Christianity. Thomas Aquinas was invited to the Second Council of Lyon at the request of Pope Gregory X, who sought to reunify the Eastern and Western churches in 1274. Aquinas reportedly struck his head on a branch and became seriously ill. He was nursed by some monks until they realized his time had come. They administered his last rites. Though he died in 1274, his influence lived on. He was made a saint and is regarded in the Catholic Church as a model teacher for those studying the priest for the priesthood. The English philosopher Anthony Kenny considers Thomas to be, quote, one of the dozen greatest philosophers in the Western world, end quote. Like other saints, many legends sprang up about him, including the claim that he had the powers of levitation. While some considered condemned Aquinas for his beliefs and teachings, Dante placed him in heaven along with the other great exemplars of religious wisdom. Pope John XXII from Avignon pronounced Aquinas a saint. Pope Pius V proclaimed Thomas Aquinas a doctor of the church in 1567, and his feast day was elevated to the status of the likes of Ambrose, Augustine of Hippo, Jerome, and Gregory the Great.
At the Council of Trent, the theological works of Aquinas were placed on the altar alongside the Bible. The last philosopher and theologian of the Middle Ages to be discussed in this episode is Catherine of Siena. She devoted herself to the will of God against the will of her parents. She joined the Sisters of Penance of St. Dominic. She became known for the mystical phenomena that happened to her, such as the stigmata or the, her, and mystical marriage to Jesus. She served as ambassador of Florence to the Pope in Avignon and played a role in Gregory XI's decision to return to Rome, ending the Avignon Papacy. Though she died in 1380 at the young age of 33, she left her mark on the church and medieval society. She dictated many spiritual treatises collected into the Dialogue of Divine Providence. She was canonized in 1461, declared a patron saint of Rome in 1866, and of Italy in 1939. In 1970, Pope Paul VI named her and Teresa of Avila as the first female doctors of the church. In 1999, Pope John Paul II named her as a patron saint of Europe. Catherine of Siena was one of the remarkable those remarkable women who went on to be a force for positive change in her society and leave an example for others to follow. Two major invasions turned European life upside down for a time. I will discuss the earlier of these two, then take a break to look at the precursors to the Renaissance and Reformation, then end this episode by examining the later of the two invasions. The Mongols emerged from a confederation of nomadic tribes on the steppes of Central Asia, under the leadership of Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan was proclaimed ruler of all the Mongols in 1206 by a tribal council. At first, the Khan persecuted Muslims and Jews, seeing them as alien and strange. After a Chinese Taoist master visited him in Afghanistan, he changed his tune, giving his subjects the right to religious freedom. He remained a staunch believer of shamanism. Genghis Khan spread his empire far and wide, conquering in every direction. By the time he died in 1227, the Mongol Empire spread from the Pacific Ocean to the Caspian Sea, which was twice as big as both the Roman Empire and the Muslim Caliphate at their greatest extents. The world had seen nothing like this before. The Mongols struck fear into those who came into contact with them. The Pope's envoy to the great Mongol Khan traveled through Kiev in February 1246 and wrote the following account. Quote, and they, the Mongols, attacked Russia, where they made great havoc, destroying cities and fortresses and slaughtering men, and they laid siege to Kiev, the, city, the capital of Russia, of Russia. After they had besieged the city for a long time, they took it and put the inhabitants to death. When we were journeying through that, through that land, we came across countless skulls and bones of dead men lying about on the ground. Kiev had been a very large and thickly populated town, but now it has been reduced to almost nothing. For there are, at the, at the present time, scarce 200 houses there, and the inhabitants are kept in complete slavery. End quote. The Mongols advanced on Europe, plundering Polish cities and threatening, and threatening Vienna and northern Albania. The Poles, Moravians, and Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights, and the Templars managed to briefly halt the Mongol advance. But later, the Hungarians, Croatians, and Templars were defeated in 1241. Only the death of the Khan, Ogade, put a stop to the invasion. Genghis Khan and his successors established what historians call the Pax Mongolica, literally the Mongol peace, during which travelers could obtain a passport and travel from Eastern Europe and Russia to China and the Pacific. 
Many, including the famous Marco Polo, explored the Mongol Empire and quote-unquote discovered more luxuries in East Asia. Ideas, religions, technologies, and many other great things spread throughout Eurasia. But something else made its way from east to west through the Mongol-controlled Silk Road. Something sinister. Something that would change European society and that would wipe out at least 30% of Europe's total population. This was the Black Death. The bacterium Yersinia pestis is blamed for the pandemic that spread across Asia and Europe like wildfire. 75 to 200 million people perished during the Black Death. Medieval writers in Europe described it as the end of the world. For the common people, this is what it seemed like. Art that depicts the Black Death shows skeletons emerging from the very jaws of hell to torment, torture, and kill innocent people. The plague peaked between 1347 and 1351. It wasn't just Europe either. The Middle East also fell prey to the disease. Constantinople, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Antioch, Acre, Aleppo, Mecca, and Baghdad all felt the effects and lost citizens. One result of the Black Death was renewed religious fervor and fanaticism. Jews, friars, foreigners, beggars, lepers, gypsies, and pilgrims were targeted as some people thought they were to blame for the crisis. Lepers, people with acne, and people with psoriasis were exterminated throughout Europe. Some Europeans thought that the Jews had poisoned the local wells, thus causing the sickness and deaths. Others thought it was God's wrath. In February 1349, the citizens of Strasbourg murdered 2,000 Jews. That August, Jewish communities in Mainz and Cologne were annihilated. By 1351, 60 major and 150 smaller Jewish communities had been destroyed. While these massacres eventually died out in Western Europe, they continued in Eastern Europe. Casimir the Great of Poland welcomed Jewish refugees, causing a large migration of Jews to that country. Between the 14th and 17th centuries, the plague returned. France alone lost almost a million people to the plague in the epidemic of 1628 to 1631. The Great Plague of London in 1655 killed up to 100,000 people. Paris, Amsterdam, Venice, Vienna, Naples, Seville, Helsinki, and Moscow all faced their own outbreaks. The last major plague epidemic in Europe occurred in 1720 in Marseille. Let us look at some popes. Pope Nicholas V, who reigned from 1447 to 1455, saw the fall of Constantinople and the end of the Hundred Years' War. He strengthened the primacy of the papacy with the Concordat of Vienna and brought about the submission of the last anti-popes, Felix V. He played a major role in the Renaissance in Rome. He came into competition with Florence, trying to make Rome the home of literature and art. He restored Roman aqueducts and worked to rebuild the Vatican and St. Peter's Basilica. He tore down part of the ancient basilica and used carloads of marble from the old Roman Colosseum for use in constructing what would become Vatican City. Nicholas supported humanism and the, the philosophical and ethical stance that emphasizes the value and agency of humans individually and collectively. Humanism encouraged critical thinking and evidence instead of just accepting dogma or superstition. Humanism helped fuel the Renaissance, Reformation, and later scientific revolution and enlightenment. Nicholas built a library to house manuscripts rescued from the Turks after the fall of Constantinople. This library became a safe haven for learning as it housed ancient texts that Renaissance scholars loved to study. Nicholas described the fall of Constantinople as, quote, the second death to Homer and Plato, end quote. 
Nicholas was asked to intervene in the territorial dispute between Spain and Portugal over the matters of the Canary Island Islands. Nicholas ruled in favor of Port Portugal. In a papal bull in 1455, Nicholas also endorsed Portuguese ownership of, of Ceuta and the right to the trade, navigate, navigation, and fishing in the discovered islands of Africa. That same papal bull sanctioned the purchase of black slaves from the infidels. This set a precedent for black slavery that would last in the future centuries and span continents. Pope Paul II ruled from 1464 to 1471. As though he opposed humanist thinking, he did approve for, the print, for printing in the Papal States. Printing in Europe was introduced by Johannes Gutenberg. He was the first European to use movable type in 1439, and he invented a process for mass-producing movable type, an oil-based ink for printing books, adjustable molds, mechanical movable type, and the use of a wooden printing press inspired by the agricultural screw presses in use at the time. When combined, these inventions allowed for the printing revolution. This played a key role in the development of the Renaissance, Reformation, Enlightenment, and Scientific Revolution. It laid the material basis for the modern knowledge-based economy and the spread of learning to the common people. Mass communication enabled by the printing press spread humanist ideas, then Protestant ideas, then Enlightenment ideas, etc. Nationalism in its earliest form also began to spread, as did literacy. The emerging middle class was bolstered by the more readily available education and learning. The European vernacular languages flourished, and Latin became less and less useful and popular. In the 1450s, the Gutenberg Bible, or the 42-line Bible, began to appear. It was the first major book printed by using mass-produced, movable type in Europe. It was an edition of the Vulgate, printed by Johannes Gutenberg. The future Pope Pius II visited Frankfurt in 1455 and saw the book on display. Pope Sixtus IV ruled from 1471 to his death in 1484. He had the Sistine Chapel built and created the Vatican Archives. He commissioned the first bridge across the Tiber since the fall of the Roman Empire. He was a patron of the arts, and because he gathered artists together to work on his projects, the early Renaissance took full form in Rome. Sixtus was also a patron of science. He issued a papal bull allowing local bishops to give the bodies of, ex of executed criminals and un unidentified corpses to physicians and artists to for dissection. He declared a crusade against the Ottoman Turks in Smyrna, but the, the fleet that he sent disbanded after the city fell. Sixtus IV flirted and re with reunifying the Roman Catholic Church with the Eastern Orthodox Church, but the gulf between the two churches had grown too wide. Sixtus was noted for his nepotism, surrounding himself with relatives and friends. He was suspected of colluding in the failed Pazzi conspiracy to assassinate Lorenzo de' Medici in 1478. The Medici family was a powerhouse in Florence, and killing the head of the family would have created a power vacuum that Sixtus would have loved to fill with members of his own family. Through Sixtus, the Spanish Inquisition was established in the Kingdom of Castile. The Inquisition would become a dangerous thorn in the side of anyone who wasn't a traditional Catholic. It targeted Jews, Muslims, or Moors as they were called, heretics, and others who would not pass for the ideal Roman Catholic. Sixtus also allowed for the practice of enslaving Africans and encouraged the conquest for the purpose of converting the conquered. Before I move on to the fall of Constantinople, I need to catch up in regard to the precursors to the Protestant Reformation. Before the Reformation, there were the Arnoldists. 
the Waldensians, the Lollards, and the Hussites. Arnold of Brescia, who lived from 1090 to 1155, was an Italian canon regular, or priest who shared his property in common. He called on the church to renounce property ownership, and he was exiled three times, then arrested, then hanged by the papacy. His body was burned and thrown into the river Tiber, but he gained a number of followers who called themselves Arnoldists. The Arnoldists criticized the great wealth of the Catholic Church and preached against baptism and the Eucharist. In 1184, Pope Lucius III condemned them as heretics. Peter Waldo, 1140-1205, was a leader of the Waldensians. Though he is regarded by some as the founder of the movement, the name Waldensians appeared before Peter Waldo was active. They were condemned by Lucius II in 1144, decades before Waldo started to preach. Not much is known about Waldo's life. He taught simplicity and poverty, condemning papal excesses and Catholic dogmas, including purgatory and transubstantiation. He believed that these dogmas were the harlot from the Book of Revelation. By 1170, Waldo had a considerable following. They preached and traveled as poor peddlers. Between 1170 and 1180, Waldo commissioned the first translation of the Bible in a modern tongue outside of Latin. The language was a dialect of Franco-Provincial. He had a papal audience with Pope Alexander III, and he tried to explain what was wrong with the church and how it could be righted. The results of the meeting were inconclusive, though the Waldensians were later condemned at the Third Lateran Council that same year. Excommunicated in 11, 1184, Waldo led his people into the mountains and high valleys of northern Italy, where they could exercise their religion freely. They were condemned once more by the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. When the Protestant Reformation began in the 16th century, the Waldensians embraced the change and allied themselves with the Protestants, often joining them. Waldensians still exist after a 1975 merger with the Methodist Evangelical Church, forming the Union of Methodist and Waldensian Churches. Congregations are active in Europe and the Americas. John Wycliffe, circa 1325 to 1384. He was an English priest and seminary professor at Oxford. He attacked the privileged status of the clergy and the luxury and pomp of local parishes and their ceremonies. He translated the Vulgate into Middle English in the year 1382, known as Wycliffe's Bible. His followers, known as the Lollards, advocated predestination, iconoclasm, and the notion of Caesaropapism, while attacking the veneration of saints and sacraments, transubstantiation, monasticism, and the very existence of the papacy. Wycliffe's teachings greatly influenced the philosophy and teaching of Czech reformer Jan Hus. Jan Hus, 1369-1415, was a Czech priest and rector of the Charles University in Prague. He condemned the sale of indulgences and the practice of crusades. His ideas spread like wildfire throughout Bohemia, and resented, resentment towards the church hierarchy also spread. Riots broke out when the Pope and Archbishop tried to silence Hus. The situation got so bad for the church that an interdict, or mass excommunication, was placed on Prague. Jan Hus no longer trusted the king or the pope or any council. He appealed to Christ himself. This is considered an, as important a step to the Bohemian Reformation as the 95 Theses of Martin Luther were to the Protestant Reformation that began in 1517. Hus was ex executed for heresy against the Catholic Church in 1415. 
His followers, the Hussites, rebelled against their Catholic rulers and defeated five consecutive crusades between 1420 and 1431. These conflicts became known as the Hussite Wars. The Hussites remained powerful until the 1620s when the Catholics under the Habsburgs won victory at the Battle of White Mountain. The Hussites were subject to immediate and forced conversion in an intense campaign of, re re of return to Catholicism. The last precursor of, of the Reformation I will cover in this podcast is Hieronimo Savonarola. He was an Italian Dominican friar and preacher in Florence during the Renaissance. He lived from 1452 to 1498. He was known for his destruction of secular art and culture and his calls for Christian renewal. He denounced corruption in the clergy, the despotic rule, and the exploitation of the poor. Some of his prophecies include the coming of a biblical flood and the arrival of a new Cyrus from the north who would reform the church. It seemed that Cyrus arrived in 1494 when Charles VIII of France invaded Italy and threatened Florence. The Florentines expelled the ruling Medici and established a republic. Savonarola played a major part in this transition. He declared that Florence would become the New Jerusalem, the world center of Christianity, that it would be richer, more powerful, and more glorious than ever. He enlisted the Florentine youth to help him rid the city of anyone who did not adhere to his pur puritanical ideas. He would hold bonfires of the vanities, in which precious Renaissance artworks and books would be burned. For all his efforts and for disobeying the summons for, uh, by the Pope, Savonarola was excommunicated in 1497. Florence was almost placed under an interdict. Popular opinion turned against Savonarola, and he and two of his friars were condemned, hanged, and burned at the stake in the main square of Florence on May 23, 1498. We've jumped around a lot in this episode. I wish to make one more jump back to 1453. The Ottoman Sultan, Mehmed II, laid siege to the great city of Constantinople. The Ottoman Turks had been growing in power and prestige in the centuries prior and were now ready to take on the weakened Byzantine Empire. Mehmed II and the Ottomans confronted the army of Constantine the, the 11th Paleogolos and defeated it. This marked the end of the Byzantine Empire, which was a continuation of the Roman Empire that had existed since 27 BC. Nearly 1,500 years of, the, of empire had come to an end. This shocked all of Christendom. Empire would never be the, Europe would never be the same. The Ottomans were no longer Im, impeded by the Byzantines. They could freely march into the Balkan Peninsula and spread their empire into Europe. Gunpowder and cannons changed the very way the wars were won, and would ultimately not only bring an end to the Byzantines, but also the empires, kingdoms, and peoples all over the world, old and new. For some historians, the fall of Constantinople marked the end of the medieval period and the beginning of the early modern period. Because Constantinople fell, Greek philosophers took their texts and learning to Italy to fuel the fire of the, of the Renaissance. But was Constantinople utterly destroyed? The answer is no. An eyewitness to the fall of the city of the Turks to the Turks wrote, quote, On the third day after the fall of our city, the Sultan celebrated his victory with a great joyful triumph. He issued a proclamation. The citizens of all ages who had managed to escape detection were to leave their hiding places throughout the city and come into the open, as they were they were, were to remain free and no question would be asked. He further declared the restoration of the houses and property to those who had abandoned our city before the siege. If they returned home, they would be treated according to their rank and religion, as if nothing had changed. End quote. 
The Hagia Sophia was converted into a mosque, though the Greek Orthodox Church was allowed to remain intact. Still, Europeans feared imminent invasion from the Ottomans. They feared that Rome, Florence, Vienna, even Paris could meet the same fate as the Great Constantinople. Some popes tried to, ca to call for crusades, but few answered. Only Europe would have to learn to cope with its new neighbor. Only diplomacy and dialogue would prevail, though this did not prevent the Ottomans and Christians from fighting. Religious wars between Muslims and Christians, and between Catholics and Protestants, would become a major theme in European history. The events and ideas of the High Middle Ages led a fuse that would result in an explosion of learning and change. The powder kegs were in place and the spark was drawing near. If you have any questions or comments, you can send me a message on Facebook or through my email, mhistorypod at gmail.com. This has been the History of the Church of Jesus Christ.